This is the Happy Are You Poor podcast, discussing topics related to radical Christian community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz. Uh, joining me today is my co-host, Peter Land. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Hey, Malcolm. I'm doing well. Thank you. Yes, I'm so glad to have you join me again today. And our guests are Robert Lockridge and Aaron Tuttle Lockridge. They're the founders of Mariah Pie, a very fascinating and unusual restaurant. And as a matter of fact, uh, Peter was able to visit them in person a few years back. In this episode, we'll be discussing their experience with building community through parish farming and feeding their neighbors. So welcome, Robert and Aaron. I'm so glad you can join us. Hi, thanks for having us, Malcolm and Peter. To start the episode, could you just tell us a little bit about your uh, background? Yeah, we we are the co-founders of Mariah Pie, as you said, and we are um, we are one. Let's see, two years out from closing Mariah Pie after an eight-year run, and we'll tell you some of the stories of that. Um, we work in Norwood, Ohio, which is a little city inside Cincinnati, Ohio, and we work as parish farmers, what we call parish farmers, and it's kind of a term that Robert came up with. Um, back when he lived in Vancouver, British Columbia, and he can tell you more about that. But it's a way to um, work and pray in the neighborhood for the people of a neighborhood. Um, and for us, it manifests as, as, as working the land and growing food to share with our neighbors in various ways. I've done a little bit of urban farming, and it's really hard work, but it's such an interesting um combination of, of growing food and trying to bring people together around that. And I've always, um, I've always been amazed at how working together can draw people together, people who might not really share anything else in common, but a shared work gives them something in common and builds up a basis for community, which is an amazing thing to watch in practice. Yeah, and we really see it as work of um, work of the church. We are both um, Orthodox Christians, and so that's where we are planted. We don't necessarily work as like sanctioned um, <laughs> lay people of the Orthodox Church in any official way, but we definitely see this as work of the church collective. It's it's work that we we hope that is prayerful and um, and not just inviting people into like a a way to grow food for the betterment of humanity, but actually a way to participate in um, being Christ-like and looking at, you know, seeing each other as that way and inviting people to consider what that might look like for themselves as well. Yeah, I think too often, you know, the faith is confined to just what happens in church, you know, or one's private relationship with God or Mm -hmm. whoever that happens. And the rest of life gets left out. I know, uh, uh, Robert, that, you know, online article you talked about coming to the conclusion that the faith is seen in a Gnostic way and your uh, renewed interest in gardening was a way to counter that Gnosticism. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Sure. Yeah. I think um, my, my story of becoming, becoming a Christian was one that, well, I mean, I grew up within the church, but I, I would say that my journey in faith, my deepening of faith, um, came in a way that pitted my relationship to the created world against my faith in some ways. I, I grew up being influenced by a tradition that basically told me that the salvation of our souls and 
was the primary focus of the Christian vocation and that that was very much <clears throat> disconnected from our bodily um, existence in the world. And so therefore the highest calling was the tending of people's souls. But what the material world had to do with that seemed to be uh, minimal or of, of little significance. And while I was living in Vancouver, British Columbia, I was going to Regent College and studying theology. And there I was really grateful to learn from many of the professors that there was a, a, a deep uh, fallacy in this way of thinking that, you know, the very incarnation of Christ proclaims a different reality, that God fully, fully man, fully God became dependent upon this create this created world as a way of revealing who God is and therefore what it means to be fully human and to be made in the image of God. And uh, for me, you know, we're, we're called to, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, um, with all that we have. And I think sometimes I've wondered, what do I do with my body in the midst of this? And when I was living in Vancouver, I felt I was living in a, a fairly um, challenged neighborhood. It was a neighborhood called the downtown east side. And this was back in around 20, 2006. And um, I felt like the theological education that I was getting at the school was really helpful, but I didn't know how to integrate it. And I didn't know how to hold the sorrows of the world and the sorrows that I felt within me back to God. And in a sense, the, the sorrows that I was feeling felt like they were crushing me. And, and so I needed a way to integrate my prayer life. I needed a way to, to kind of cry out to God with my body and to receive somehow a, a peace and a grace from God. And so it's within that context that I started, I, I returned to some of my roots. I grew up gardening, not in a very urban context, but it's in that context that I, I returned to some, some of my gardening roots and found the work of, you know, tending the soil and putting seeds in the soil and receiving the gifts that come from the soil and the gifts that come from, um, tending something, watching something grow and, and being held by God to be deeply nourishing in a way that animated me in an unexpected way. Um, it became deeply life-giving and, um, I found, I found a way to be pastoral, a pastoral presence in my neighborhood, um, that didn't require me to be, um, stuck in an office. I could be out tending and serving the land and hopefully receiving from God through the people that I met. Um, and also giving to God and to others around me. So that's just in brief, some of the transformations that I had in that, in that time period. That's, you know, an amazing story. And I'm thinking about my own experience with gardening. I uh, started, started gardening when I was seven without uh, that much success at first, since I didn't know what I was doing at all. But um I think, you know, you're talking about how you had, you know, this experience of the faith that you wanted to reintegrate with uh, the world. I'm, I'm reminded of a, <clears throat> a friend who said that he grew up as a fundamentalist Christian, and he was told in his education that um, he was he was given a very Gnostic view of the faith because he said that his instructors told him 
you know, when you go to the moon, you need moon suits. And here on Earth, we to live on Earth, we have to have Earth suits, which is our body. But obviously, when you're done with your trip to the moon, you get rid of your moon suit. And similarly, when we get to heaven, we, um, you know, we can get rid of this Earth suit. It doesn't really matter. And, and of spaceship Earth, you know, as a whole. Um, it's just like a tool to get souls to heaven. And where, you know, like, for one thing, the distinguishing element of our faith is the resurrection of the body that's that's what sets our faith apart from everything else really no one else makes that claim and it's a claim that would have that was scandalous and shocking to the uh, greek pagan world of christ's day but i was also thinking about how my personal experience is in one sense it's it has a certain similarity to yours but it's sort of like in reverse that i as a teenager i became very scrupulous and very um, oppressed by kind of a dark vision of our relationship with God. And I was tempted to become angry with God for, you know, having made me this, you know, put me into this life where it seemed that I couldn't uh, attain salvation, that it was impossible. And, but my pre-existing love of gardening and of the natural world always held me back from rejecting the goodness of God, that, that there was a, a goodness there that helped me to get through that, that really dark period in my life. So I know how, how kind of healing the natural world can be that way. And I was, I was thinking too about what you said about, you know, that Christ himself became dependent on the natural world. And it's an amazing thing that creation was able to sustain the creator, that he made himself humble enough. And I think that you know, I don't know, in your experience, is, is part of what we learn from working the earth a certain kind of um, humility to accept our place as, as creatures in a created world? Yeah, I think uh, we, I think we're created, sometimes I, I hear people say that, you know, the whole world was created for us. And in a sense, believing that we are created in the image of God and that we have this high um, this high role, if you will, in, in the cosmos, that that makes sense. But I, I guess I tend to think more of um, we we are created uh, for hopefully for the benefit of the world, for the life of the world. So we are we are created to tend and serve the world uh, such that the world might flourish and um, recognizing that, you know, at the very heart of the gospel is the giving of life so that life might flourish and so that life might, um, I guess, yeah, so that life might even just exist and recognizing that as, as those made in the image of God, we get to participate in this. We get to either, either you know, the, the economics of the world are such that either life has to be taken for life to exist or life can be given. And as those who are, freed, hopefully, learning to be freed from the fear of death by the victory of Christ over death, we get to learn how to follow in Christ's way and lay our lives down for the life of the world. And we do that by learning to tend and serve rather than dominate the creation. And um, I think that that's, you know, that's going to be a lifelong path for all of us because the fear of death is is deep in each of us. And we, uh, we don't know how to contend with it, but that's the path we're on. You know, if I could just jump in real quick, too. Um, 
thank you for everything that's being shared right now. Uh, two thoughts that come to mind are just the incarnational reality of our faith and sacramentality. And, uh, and you've already touched on it, but just the fact that Jesus Christ took flesh, the Son of God, and how um, Pope John Paul II, he talked about how Jesus Christ reveals man to himself. So we, we come to know our own identities um, as creatures, but filled with God through Jesus, through his life, him being both fully divine and human. But also we, we participate in that, that divine reality, and so does our bodies. I mean, that's what's incredible, that this body-soul unity that we, we were created to have that are, that's connected to God. And so um, that kind of leads me to this the second thought of sacramentality. Like we we experience the grace and the spiritual reality, the invisible, like undying, eternal reality of our souls, the spiritual life, and God through the physical world and through the physical reality. And it's kind of like that idea with tending a garden, cultivating a garden um, to create more abundance becomes a, something of a sacrament of our own internal interior spiritual lives mm-hmm. that, that like there's this internal garden of our soul that is also meant to flourish and to become abundant. But the, the beauty of it or the blessing of the physical reality is that it's like through the physical reality that that becomes more and more of a reality, you know, through our engagement with physical things, um, the spiritual life grows it's like the, the, the spiritual garden within doesn't, doesn't grow, doesn't flourish in a, in a vacuum or in isolation or simply through thought processes, simply in a cerebral way, which is so much of Western Christian society in a lot of ways, I think, unfortunately. Um, but, and that's what's so beautiful about how you both have embraced your, your faith journey together is, is like a, a hands-on engagement and how that how that creates something beautiful, not just externally, but internally. I think of one of the sayings of the church fathers that our salvation hinges on the flesh. And it's like, not just through Jesus Christ and his um, paschal mystery, but also like, like I'm reminded of St. Paul and what he says, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like, what does it mean to work out our salvation? But like, it's got to be through the body. It's got to be through this life, you know, through um, what we do with, with uh, the time given us and and the, and the body, it's kind of almost like all these talents given to us to, and you know, they're manifested in our body in a way or through the body that they need to be brought to some kind of greater fulfillment it reminds me, Peter, of um, the other day, you know, our children, they're two and four, and they spend a lot of time just playing in our backyard. We have a, a backyard that joins up with about four or five other backyards. And so the kids have a lot of kind of rough and tumble space to run around in. And one day, they often come in very dirty, and which is great. But one day, um, our son Callum was particularly dirty, and he's, he's two, and it was time for dinner, and I put him in his high chair and I, I said, I'm going to wash your feet off first. And so I, I got down on my knees and I had a wet rag and I started to wash his feet. And Amory, our daughter, was there as well. And I, I said to them, like, you remember, this is what Jesus did for his disciples. And 
I get to learn how to be like Jesus right now because I'm, I'm caring for you. You know, Jesus did this to teach us what God is like, mm-hmm. and we get to do this now for each other. And it was, you know, it's obviously, it's a, it's a well-known story. We all know it. It's a very simple moment, but it was so profound at the same time because here I was like on my knees with a rag in my hand in front of this little two-year-old image of Christ, you know, embodying this, this thing that Jesus did and realizing how short I fall of that example, but kind of feeling the profundity of that, um, of the, we get to, we get to do that. You know, we get to, we get to, with our bodies and with our love for one another, learn what it's like to be like Jesus. That's so beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. I was just thinking that, you know, learning to be like Christ, since he, of course, was an embodied human being, that yes, of course, that has to, we have to imitate him in a bodily way. And then, you know, thinking about your Mariah Pie project, uh, you know, it's all about feeding mm-hmm. people. And, you know, thinking about Christ feeding the crowds on at least two occasions in the gospel, that in our own way, even if we can't, uh, have such an exactly miraculous multiplying of food that that's what we do in, in gardening and in preparing food that we multiply the sowing seed through the miracle of God's creation. So can you then tell us a little bit about how Mariah pie came to be? And, and uh, just to start with like the name, why did you choose that name for the project? Sure. Yeah. I mean, backing up just a little bit, we, um, we, we got married in at the end of 2011 and went on our honeymoon. And as we were traveling home from our honeymoon, we stopped at a restaurant. It was a, it was a breakfast diner in Eastport, Maine. And we were really taken by the way that the neighbors from this community came there for breakfast. They all seemed to know each other. The waitress in particular stood out to us the way that she greeted all the people and um, tended them as she served them breakfast. She almost seemed like a, a pastoral figure to them. And we had, we lived in this neighborhood in Norwood and down at the end of our street was, well, actually we didn't have a, yeah, we, we were going to actually be living above this cafe at that time. So it wasn't at the end of our street. It was kind of like where we were going to be living, but the downstairs portion of this building used to be a coffee shop. It had been closed for several years and there would, had been a lot of talk in the community. What could this space be for the community? And as we sat there at breakfast that morning in you know, Maine, in Maine, having only been married for a few days, we were like, well, this is what this, this space should be. You know, it should be this for the community. And we were both in agreement, um, though I don't know if I quite understood the depth of Robert's vision. He, he thought, well, this is what we could do there. And so we got home and, and you know, sorted all that out and kind of made this plan. We, um, for a while, like we had been growing food and that summer before our wedding, we shared that food with our neighbors in the form of a CSA. So that CSA, if you don't know, stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And it's a way for people's to, people to kind of buy into a harvest of the farmer. And then um, what they pay at the beginning of the growing season entitles them to show up every week and receive a share of the produce. And we offered our CSA to the neighborhood on a pay-as-you-can basis. We decided to remain blind to what people paid. And it was a fine summer. It was a fine project. But in the end, it felt like it didn't make sense to our surrounding neighborhood, to the people that called this place home. Um, 
yeah, it, it like all the various fresh produce that came from the gardens throughout the entire growing season wasn't always what people wanted to be cooking with. And so when we sat there in the diner in Maine and we thought about turning that cafe space into a restaurant, we realized that that would enable us to take the food that we grew and transform it into something that did make more sense. And we eventually got to the idea of pizza because pizza is so versatile. And then we um, decided to open Mariah Pie only on Friday nights so that you know the rest of the week we would spend growing the food. On Friday nights, we got to share it with the neighbors in the form of this restaurant. And we also did it as a pay-as-you-can restaurant. So when people came to dinner, it, it looked just like any other restaurant. Like that was our goal, at least. So there were flowers on the table and waiters and waitresses and music being played. And um, people would put in their orders and have it brought to their table. But at the end of their meal, instead of receiving a bill, they would have an envelope given to them and they would then choose what they put into it. And we would empty that envelope without looking at what the contents were. We, we told people we're going to remain blind to what you give so that people could kind of wrestle with that idea. We named it Mariah Pie because we wanted to reference the place in scripture where God names, sorry, where Abraham names God as the God who provides. And this was there are many things that Mariah Pye invited us and invited others to do, but one of those things was to trust in the provision of God. What do you want to add to that, Robert? Yeah, to to that end, um, uh, a book that was pretty significant to me before our time of starting Mariah Pye was a book by uh, Craig Gay, and it's called The Way of the Modern World or Why It's Easy to Live as Practical Atheists. And I think living in a in a culture and in an economy in which we are um, deeply disconnected from all of the relationships upon which we depend. You know, um, we're disconnected from the palm trees that make the palm oil that goes into our donuts or whatever. You know, we're just so far removed from all the, the people and the creatures and the land and the rain that, um, that, goes into our very provision. And so I think that this this disconnection, this unhooking from the creation and from relationships of dependence and interdependence feels like it's it's a deep poverty. And it's a poverty that leaves us um, vulnerable to a practical atheism. And so we we wanted to pursue this question of we, we desire to know what it means for God to provide because we feel like a living faith necessarily has a, a, a level of intimacy when it comes to understanding God's provision. And surely, you know, we can all, all of us who are uh, people of faith can probably speak to moments and times when God has provided. But I think we hungered and still do hunger for a way to know that in the, you know, in the small details of life. Um, and to, to become Eucharistic people through that, to be so connected to God's provision that um, a spirit of gratitude is what comes forth from us, you know, in this way that, that all of our interactions with creation might be a path of communing with God. And so, yeah, I, I guess we kind of wanted to name that at the, the forefront and let it be an invitation for us so that, you know, so that when... Maybe we we spend a lot of time making a certain dish or a pizza or a pie, and then somebody um, maybe didn't eat any of it or threw it away. 
you know, our tendency in that moment could be to feel that the world is a world of scarcity and we're vulnerable and we need to kind of pull back and protect ourselves. But I think we wanted to, we wanted to live more deeply into this path of trusting and experiencing God's provision. And I think part of that is kind of going out on a limb and, and then inviting, like recognizing that we are in a place of need. But then I think one of, one of the great delights um, and gifts of Mariah Pai through the years was that in that sort of, that, that place of needing so many people in so many ways stepped forward and gave it themselves in, in beautifully unique ways. I mean, even for example, um, you know, yesterday I'm, I'm running this cafe. It's called for the life of the world cafe. It's a breakfast cafe. It's similar to Mariah pie. Um, but it's, it's breakfast now and it's smaller scale. It's more manageable in a lot of ways. But anyway, yesterday morning I was, you know, a few minutes away from opening and our neighbors, a couple doors down <clears throat> a, a couple who are, good friends of ours, they came walking into the cafe with uh, a dozen bouquets of flowers that they had had gotten up that morning and harvested and put into, um, you know, jars and arranged to go on the tables. And that was, you know, clearly their giving of themselves in a way that that made more beautiful what we were doing and that that fed my spirit very much, fed, fed my being um, just in their gift. And then yesterday afternoon, I was working in the, in the garden and there was a man who um, I've gotten to know in the last several months is, who um, is a vet of the Afghan war, you know, was hit by an IED when he was there, um, you know, struggles with some, some alcohol addiction, but in many ways, a beautiful person. And I was, I was out planting some tomato plants and hoeing around some broccoli plants. And he, he came over and worked in the garden and gave of himself. I didn't ask him to do it, but I think it was deeply enlivening for him to be able to do it. And it was a way for him to give back, you know, and he, I think he's, he's eaten yesterday morning. He ate a waffle, you know, with fruit from the neighborhood on it and stuff like that. And I think he wanted to give back and this is a way for him to do it. And so just learning time and again that that God provides is something that, you know, and, and it kind of it cultivates us uh, despite the American kind of ethos of I can do this all by myself. I'm independent. I don't need anybody's help to kind of put ourselves in this place where we do need other people's help and then for other people to step forward and help us. It's been humbling, but also a great gift. Wow. Yeah. Thank you both for sharing that. It just it makes me think of... Um, when we make ourselves dependent on God and trust in his providence and, and through the, through the, um, the help and support of other people generosity, we invite the multiplication of generosity and we invite the, the multiplication of like sharing and community and community. I, that's what I personally witnessed when I, when I spent time with you all at Mariah pie and helping out, it was beautiful to see even just like on one hand, the, the financial piece at Mariah Pie, where there were a number of people who were of maybe a lower income and couldn't afford as much to pay for the food, but they, they put in what they could. And then there were other people who of greater means, who, because you just, you just invited um, people to pay what they could, 
they ended up paying a whole lot more than they would normally for any kind of meal in order to, to support and make up for those who couldn't pay as much. But, you know, it's just like the, the element of going forward in trust and, you know, depending on God, depending on others, it, it, it invites like um, kind of a, a heroic response from people to, to get involved, to get engaged, to give of themselves, to not just seek what is theirs, but what they can give. I, you know, and, and you talked about like the desire to have your faith be more, more real, like the, the faith uh, in our culture when we have everything given to us can, can lead to, I think you said, like a practical atheism. And it was one of the reasons that sparked me to go on a, a pilgrimage that eventually landed me in Norwood, Ohio, to be with you all. But I, I was like this need for me to just like not have everything given to me and to actually like go forward in a way in which I had to trust day to day that God would provide for my everyday sustenance. And I was overwhelmed mm -hmm time and again, like actually in a daily manner, how God provided abundantly through other people and almost like putting me in a vulnerable position invited this generous response that would not have happened if there was no vulnerability in the first place. And, mm -hmm. and then as they gave to me, it, it encouraged me to give back to them whatever I could, even though I didn't have like maybe financial means to give, but there was like, hey, I'm here. What can I do? How can I help? And that's exactly what I got to do with all of you is like, hey, I, I'm here for a time. Can I join in? And I think you let me serve in the Mariah Pie. And I, I got to garden a little bit in other people's yards, by the way, which is <laughs> I always found that that was a beautiful thing. Like, uh, Malcolm, if you didn't get the if, if you didn't hear about this yet, but with the parish farming school that Aaron and Robert were um, you doing, they were actually like being lent out space from their neighbors, like their other people's yards. You would walk through the neighborhood and it was just like gardens everywhere. And I don't know the particulars of how that worked out, but um, it was a beautiful way in which community was brought together and, and people were sharing resources and working together. Um, so I was very much humbled and inspired by your, the two of you, like your radical faith and what what you really initiated and, and, and continue to bring to the place where you are. Thank you. Peter. Yeah. That kind of vulnerability is, um, is necessary. I mean, that's the whole concept of voluntary poverty in the gospels to depend on God, but even more perhaps directly to depend on other people through which God's goodness can come to us. Um, I know, Quite often when I'm talking to people about voluntary poverty as a gospel value, um, they're uncertain because of the fact that we live in such an anti-communal culture that they feel that there's no alternative between absolute destitution and, you know, personal financial security. Um, and, and that shows how deeply we need, you know, a community that cares that uh, in, in acts where we see a community where people give radically, but it's also a community where people are cared for. And, you know, just thinking about that aspect of, of Mariah Pie, where trying to depend on people and even like with gardening, one of the things I think of about gardening is that you, what one quickly realizes that one isn't in control, you know, you can't make 
can't make food grow. So like, yeah. <laughs> uh, as, as we speak here in, uh, in here in Colorado, um, it's been hot and sunny for almost a month now. And, and, you know, this is pretty far into the spring, but we're going to get freezing temperatures and seven inches of snow tomorrow night. And, uh, the garden is out oh there in the weather and, um, you know, we're going to, wow. Very vulnerable. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, we'll try and cover it. We'll see what happens, but, um, uh, Colorado, perhaps more than other places, you can never count on what will happen next, but that trust in, in other people. And that leads into you know, what I find one of the most interesting things about your project is that, you know, the food wasn't at a set price that you, and, and in your cookbook that I've enjoyed reading so much, you described that there were, was sort of a problem whereby, um, because there was no set price, um, Mariah Pie became known sometimes as uh, the place to get free pizza and how that was somewhat problematic. Could you tell us a little about that? You drew an interesting um, distinction between price and cost. Yeah, there was a, you know, one of the things we haven't mentioned is that one of the big reasons why we've been able to do what we do is because of an existing church in this neighborhood called Vineyard Central. And, um, this church is a vineyard church, but it is um, a more liturgical vineyard church. And it's it's um, a group of people who have really over the, what, 30-year tenure of this, of this church, have really um, made a point to live and work in the neighborhood. Not everybody, and not everybody, some people might live here but work elsewhere, but they, they really try to be an incarnational presence in the neighborhood. And it's a really special community of people. And... Um, that's a lot of the people who lent us land to farm. That's a lot of the people who supported us in so many ways. A lot of the people who came to the restaurant in the first year or so of its existence and supported us. Um, but it was always our, you know, our desire for this to be a place that the wider community of, of uh, Norwood and, you know, beyond, but first for Norwood to come and find um, a place of, community, a place of rest, a place of nourishment. And um, it, you know, it took some time for that. But this, this one particular year, I think it was probably 2014, maybe, where there were a lot of folks from the community from all different walks of life coming. And the word was spreading that this, yeah, that this was the place for free pizza, you know, on Friday nights, go down to the corner and get some free pizza. And we were so happy that people were coming, a wider um, group of people were coming, but we realized that there was an articulation that we needed to find that was beyond what we had been doing. And I remember sitting down and, and we, we talked about it a lot. And I, then I sat down and wrote this little thing that we put on the table and I felt like I needed to be pretty straightforward that this pizza is not free. And I even got in the habit of saying that to people and I didn't want to be, you know, like rude or off-putting, but I felt like it was important to say that free kind of makes something there's there, there are plenty of contexts where people do things for free and that that's beautiful and good but in our in our case I felt like it, it cheapened what we were offering and what we hope to be um, sharing I should say and so we yeah we kind of discovered this delineation between free and cost and that this pizza is not expensive people can come and 
eat pizza and walk out the door without without paying anything. And that happened many times for various reasons, whether we knew it or not. And that was fine. That is exactly what we invited, that that, that could happen sometimes. Um, but we weren't asking them to pay what what often people pay for home grown, locally grown, you know, homemade, made from scratch food. And that type of stuff is often very expensive. So we were asking them to um, consider what it might cost. And the idea that cost is something that is um, at the, at the center of all that is good, all that is love. It is at the center of our Christian faith. Our faith is a great and costly gift. And um, we didn't necessarily say that explicitly. You know, we are doing this thing that is costly because Jesus gave us something that is costly. We didn't say that, but we um, explicitly, but we, yeah, I think we just invited them to, to, to see that, like, what does it mean to receive something that is costly? This food that you are eating tonight started as seeds in our basement a year ago and we've kind of been working for a year to bring this food to the table and it has cost our bodies it has cost our community it has has cost the soil nutrients it has cost certain things and all that is a very beautiful thing that is steeped in good relationship and so what does it look like then for you to offer something back to us that is also costly and that might be three pennies. One of the most meaningful experiences was the second night we were ever open and a man came in and he received the food and he really felt so welcomed and nourished by it. And we knew that because he said it in words, but he also, he was experiencing homelessness at the time. And he also sat and he colored a picture for us. I was drawing these little doodles at the time and putting them on the tables for the children to color. And he he colored them. He was, you know, in his 20s or 30s. He colored this picture and then he left a handful of pennies and he wrote a note and said, this is what I have to give. And I really felt like that gift, like that was a true giving of something costly for him. And that was so beautiful. Um, and like Robert said, we got to experience a lot of people over the years offering something that is costly that isn't necessarily money in the envelope. And that has been a really beautiful experience. It seemed as if there were a few people who also just volunteered to help at the cafe, apart from the parish farming school that was involved for some time. Is that right, Aaron, Robert? Like people would just kind of jump in, help with different aspects of the, of the cafe at different times? Yeah, it looked differently over the years, but there have always been the handful of people who would come in and with their family for dinner and say, oh, you look really busy right now. We'll help um, roll silverware or whatever. Um, but yeah, over the years, we we have had, yeah, different models of what that has looked like. Yeah. And they're, and they're you know, ranging from from children, you know, um, children who got to help serve on occasion, um, which I think was really empowering to them. And then, you know, some people have obviously, they've been helping all along, you know, um, if (laughs) people who they would want us to call them in the 11th hour when we were really in need and we knew that they, they wanted to be there in those moments. And so we would, and then other people who, as Aaron said, just kind of happened to, to see that we were in need on a given Friday and jumped in and, uh, all sorts and I think that like one of the the economic ideas that we have 
wrestled with and that that makes this question of cost versus um i guess price mm-hmm. um so so interesting and challenging is um you know our our economic system is is premised on all these hidden external costs these hidden externalities you know these costs that are not necessarily borne by the the consumer if we want to say that so you know these costs to to you know laborers who are picking our food elsewhere or to um the ecological health of a place far away or to various people's livelihoods so this this idea of trying to rather than defer cost upon other people and other creatures elsewhere that's all hidden the idea is that we would as much as possible obviously still dependent upon others for cheese and flour and certain things, but as much as possible, kind of hold those costs in our neighborhood um, and bear them, um, try to learn how to bear them. And I think that's also this kind of path of, of voluntary poverty, if you will. I, I don't, we, I don't know if we would call ourselves poor, but there is a way in which we've chosen certain ways of being in the world, which, which involves more inefficiency. It involves more labor, um, it involves less machinery. It involves, um, you know, more vulnerability, less control. And, and all those things, we're, we see them as a way of um, not deferring the cost in an unjust, unhealthy way upon others, but trying to learn how to bear it well as Christians here, believing that by doing so, we're nourishing, helping nourish and cultivate the deeper ecosystem here. So it's like by keeping the cost here, we can maybe help. Well, I don't help. That's not even the right word. By keeping the cost here, hopefully we can learn to become more like Christ and do that together with others. And as a, as a result of that, the sort of the culture of a place can change. And we can, we can at the same time not be dis- we can be less destructive toward other cultures and other places elsewhere. Taking on a burden instead of imposing it on other people. Uh, it's, I think it's one of the most beautiful ideas in the New Testament where St. Paul is drawing out yeah. what the inner meaning of, of Christ is for the new community and is that like we like the weaker members of the community, whether they're weak in body or spirit or in finances, that the strong members have to be careful not to put a burden on the weak and instead have to t- pick up the burden um, so that the weak don't end up with that falling on them. And obviously that can be extended, as you said, to the, the natural world that we tend to throw a burden on without mm-hmm. realizing it. And then when, you know, that, that I think too is one of, for, certainly for me, one of the eye-opening um, effects of growing food is to realize just even on a small scale how hard it is and to realize what kinds of burdens one might be imposing on others, on, on migrant laborers or on other landscapes um, that one would never realize unless one felt it. And I was thinking, you know, too, about as you're talking about cost, that everything's costly, but it doesn't have to have a price. Right. And I was thinking about how, like, the price we pay, as you pointed out, doesn't usually reflect the real cost. In the United States, we pay 
a price that leaves us feeling free mm-hmm. that we've you know totally paid, but that it doesn't really count the externalities. It doesn't count the underpaid migrant workers, the damaged landscapes. All that cost is not reflected in the price. Whereas, like the true cost of anything is just about infinite. I'm uh, reminded of a story, and I've I've never been able to tell if this story is actually true, but it's instructive. The the story goes that when the philosopher John Stuart Mill um, grew up, uh, his father presented him with a bill, a monetary bill, for all the costs of raising him and educating him. And now, you know, like no one could ever totally repay a parent's care. That's not Hmm. possible. But this apparently a sort of a control mechanism. Right. Uh, Mill's father presented this bill. And instead of being controlled by it, John Stuart Mill worked for the next 10 years and paid off the bill and then never spoke to his father again. And hmm. kind of the like a price is something it, it evokes finality. Like once the price is paid, the two people have no further relation with one another. But because a cost is infinite and it can be infinite on both ends, that both people can be infinitely indebted to the other um it's a much it's a much healthier and more human thing and of course you know buying buying tomatoes at the store is nothing like as destructive as trying to get paid for the the cost of raising a child but in a very small way that buying of food (laughs) can lead to that same kind of impersonal and fragmenting logic to go on, you know, with with the another you know kind of question I have is you mentioned doing a lot of things by hand, and I know in the cookbook you mentioned um, uh, that like insofar as you could, you didn't use machinery both in the gardens and in the um, in the kitchen. Could you explain a little bit more why, in particular, you made that choice? Um, well, yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I grew up. I grew up growing food with my father in the red clay soils of central Virginia. And, um, and there we, I definitely, you know, my earliest memories are standing behind my father with a rototiller. And uh, when Erin and I first met each other, she, she told me that she made a, a, a pretty, you know, compelling argument that, that tilling the soil was ultimately not great for the soil, um, that it disturbed the, you know, the, the habitat of microorganisms and that over time it led to the leaching out of the soil, the loss of nutrients. So there, there was that, um, that was a pretty compelling argument that she made early on. Um, but I also think that in a world where we have a lot of people who are, well, you know, in a world that's becoming ever more automated and mechanized and in a world where a lot of people, frankly, don't know what to do with their bodies, like don't know how to use their bodies constructively or to, as I was talking about earlier, how to pray with their bodies or how to let their tending of the creation through their bodies be something that forms them and shapes them and humbles them. So in a sense, like in a world that doesn't have good work or that is seemingly with not enough good work, for at least the people here in the city of this type, this kind of orienting work, um, we've, yeah, we've chosen to, as much as possible, 
um, use our bodies and invite other people in and have sort of a direct relationship to the land through, you know, um, simple tools. And, and, and at times that's been, I, I think, you know, every year I, I wonder about that because of, in a sense, the scale that we tend in order to grow enough food. And as, as I get older, um, I'm getting tireder and there's just, there are limitations. And so I, I'm not sure how it all works out, but that's the path that we have, have been on. Um, similarly, I think in the kitchen, it's, you know, we, we, you know, we use some, some small kitchen machinery, like mixers and food processors and things like this. Um, but I think learning to use our hands again, to, to become skilled with our hands is something that I can, I think I find that to be deeply empowering and, um, so, yeah, it's a good thing. It's it's like the way that we were created and to look at our hands as being highly skilled if we develop them to be so. And and seeing that as a path of empowerment for human beings in a world where we've, again, know less and less how to use our hands well. So, I mean, that's kind of the, the sort of thought behind it. I'm not, um, I'm not like going to die on my sword when it comes to all of that. I think that there are probably ways that I have and that we have... Um, changed through the years and recognized that some of our aspects of inefficiency are perhaps too <laughs> um, uh, ridiculous, foolish. I'm not sure what the right word is, but um, there, there are smarter ways to do things. And I think we're, we're always trying to do, figure out what does it mean to do things in a smarter way. But usually, and you know, within, when it comes to tending the land, always thus far within the limitation of just hand tools. I liked when uh, in, in the cookbook, when you mentioned that, you know, some of these things were inefficient, but that when we talk about efficiency, we always have to uh, discuss inefficient for what, you know, it depends on what we're trying to do. And um, I don't mm. remember the, the exact context, but, but it was something like that. If, you know, if, if the goal is to make a hundred pizzas as fast as possible, then machinery is more efficient, but if the goal is to build community, then maybe, uh, something else is more efficient. And I was thinking, um, so when I ran an urban farming project, we were lar used largely hand tools. Um, and, but on occasion we used machinery and it had a different feel for sure. Uh, like we rented a chipper to demolish a big pile of brush and stuff. And it was mm -hmm. so loud that of course, no meaningful conversation could take place while we worked, which was usually a really great part of the project. And all through the afternoon, I had to be worrying that somebody was going to get sucked into the chipper, you know. Um, it was like things happen fast with machinery. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, just uh, it, it certainly got a lot of work done really fast. Um, but there was something a little bit dehumanizing about it. So, yeah, trying to strike that balance um, without being purist about it. You know, a quick example too. Um, a, a memory I have when I was with you, Aaron and Robert, was cracking walnuts. I think it was walnuts. Was it black walnuts? Or? Yeah, black yeah. walnuts. Black walnuts. Oh my gosh! And we were, I think, trying to prepare, or we we're going to have walnuts as a part of the Friday night 
um, offering. Maybe they were going into the salad or something. It, it was um, probably the black walnut cake that we would serve with maple syrup. So it, yeah, it had maple syrup from the neighborhood and black walnuts. And we would, it would take a long time to get the black walnuts for a cake. So, um, but I just remember like, yeah, it was a slow process. Like we were maybe using uh, like a nutcracker and cracking these shells. And it took me like a little while to figure out how to do it right. And then, you know, you had to make sure you get rid of all the shell because that could be a disaster if there was a little bit of the shell <laughs> still connected to the walnut. And, um, you know, maybe an hour and I got like a handful of walnuts. Like I just remember like, wow, this is a slow process. But I was with a few other people and I, I so much enjoyed it. You know, I was just sitting down and cracking walnuts and, you know, conversation came and went and I kind of felt at home doing it. Like there was a, a, a naturalness to it. It wasn't the most efficient, but um, it invited fellowship and invited just kind of being doing this together. And there's something about when, when we're working together in a common task with our hands, like we can be occupied with that. But um, I don't know, it, it just kind of creates a very natural space for us, for, for, for conversation to happen, for bonds to be built but not like in a forced way where, you know, people are just two people are sitting down and looking at each other, right. you know, and it's like, okay, we have to speak, you know, we better speak. Or what, what we do. So, um, I really appreciated that. And I, you know, as just a, as a side point, one of my favorite memories was um, coming over to your house for dinner. And it was such a beautiful experience. The first time was when you had the group of, um, I guess, interns over to your house and you made the whole meal for everybody. I mean, it, and, and it was so much by hand. Yeah. So I, I just remember like the the love that went into the meals, and like when you when you make things by hand. Oh, your bread, making bread from scratch, and the soups. A lot of it was just like local ingredients, all harvested. Some of us we we helped in harvesting. Um, it, it just made the meal and the conversation so meaningful, and it was just such a a homely. Uh, experience, intimate experience, and inviting good like theological discussion. We read that article, and then you also had me over on another occasion where we had meals. So, I just want to thank you for for providing such beautiful experiences for us, and really to inspire. I think so many people to to rethink uh, the experience of being human and being alive, and and eating being such a central part of that experience one in which um, relationship is, is really developed. Mm. Yeah, on a, on a similar note, it just reminded me of this moment that happened today. I, just for the record, Robert, all this work that we're talking about, Robert really does, he carries the brunt of it on his shoulders. I'm, in this season of our life, I'm with our kids and I also um, work with the, I help run the outdoor program at, our daughter's preschool and it's just down the street. So we get to take the kids out into our, the, you know, our gardens and the, the space where we have our chickens and down to the park where there's a lot of natural area. And it's, it's a really sweet time, but we, this, today I had the kids outside and we were making wild violet pesto. <laughs> and so I was teaching them how to identify the wild violets. And we were all kind of crouched down in the grass underneath these big oak trees in the courtyard of an old Catholic church with the convent on one side and the rectory on the other side in this really beautiful shady space. And we were picking wild violet leaves. And one of the kids said, these are, you know, kids age 
three to six. And one of the kids said, man, I wish, I wish there was just like a violet harvesting machine that we could just run through here right now. And I said, gosh, that would sure make things easier, wouldn't it? But then we wouldn't hear the birds singing and we wouldn't be able to talk to each other. And my fingers wouldn't get to touch these leaves and learn what they feel like. And we wouldn't have to even know these, these plants. We would just send the machine out to do it. And by the end of, you know, we started talking about that. And by the end of it, they were like, we don't want any machines. <laughs> we're not, you know, we're not anti-machines, but it was just this really lovely moment where we just got to kind of ruminate on all the gifts, you know, yes, talking with friends and building community and also knowing in a, in a different way, like knowing this world around us with our bodies, with our fingers and our senses. And so it reminds me of a book I, I recently read called Slow Church. Yes. And it was based on the principles of the slow food movement that is trying to counter the fast food movement, um, but applying them to principles and practices concerning the church. And mm-hmm. it, it was just really beautiful to think about slowing down. Like we can't really have relationship with other people, with the land around us, unless we really slow down and take time to be really present to what is before us. And so, so much revolved around that idea of like, just slowing, slowing down is not a bad thing. It's actually a, a beautiful thing, mm-hmm. a very necessary element in our, in our t- experience of being human. And I guess it, it invites an experience of, of life that is so much richer, is so much more varied and, um, has a greater depth and it's really only in that experience where community can, can really happen. So I guess it, it kind of goes back to that, that idea that Malcolm brought up and that you were touching on is like, yeah, to what degree, I mean, efficiency is necessary. We can't do everything like, you know, there was no technology, but yeah. To what degree, like, do we sacrifice certain time-saving devices or, uh, I guess the meaning and, and purpose of doing it by, you know, in sim- simpler ways, I guess. As we were talking about efficiency, um, you know, that you might get less black walnuts cracked, but build more community along the way. And, and it depends on what you're looking at that maybe cracking them by hand is more efficient for building community. I was thinking about kind of the wider context of achievement in general. And a spiritual writer I like a lot says that achievement is kind of a, a dangerous concept for human beings. Um, and I know at some point, at a certain point, you mentioned that Mariah Pye didn't achieve anything in like the, the uh, worldly sense. It didn't fix all the problems in the neighborhood. And why, why, is, um, why is that okay that it didn't solve all the problems or act as a modern philanthropic organization? Yeah, I think that that's a, it's a really good question. It's a question that I think we all are pressed with in, in various ways in our different vocations. Um, I think that the reason why it's okay that it didn't achieve much is that um, it, it, I feel like it always was and, you know, remained, um, a project, a way of being that 
sought to cultivate a, like the means and the ends as love. And what I mean by that is it, it was such a small thing. We, you know, we opened a restaurant once a week, just once a week, one evening a week. And, um, and yet it felt, I think not just by us, but by many other people involved, it felt like a sacred thing. It felt like, um, a place where those of us running the cafe and those who came, it felt like perhaps we all encountered God in unexpected ways. And so I guess how you measure that, what's the metric around finding a resting point in God? I, you know, I don't know what that is, but it felt like somehow it's, that's what this, this work did and continues to do in many ways. And I think in that sense, it's, it's invaluable. Um, but, you know, living in a world where um, kind of being able to tell, tell, tell what we've done, what we've accomplished. I, I've had, you know, friends tell me before, you know, Robert, I thought you would have kind of done more with your life or um, some family members have definitely not understood what we've done with our lives. So I don't know if that gets at gets at that, but I think like on a on a personal level, you know, learning learning each of us. If if I can, there, there's a saint. There's one, and I forget the the saint at this moment. But this idea of if we learn to to be saved ourselves, then perhaps. And I, when I say saved, what I mean by that is if we if we learn to rest in the love of God. Um, then perhaps we will we will have a part in the, the salvation of many. And so, in a world where we're we're tempted to be um, to wield power, often to the destruction of others, where we're where ego can get in the way, often of a lot that we do. I think a small project that ends up ending after eight years is not a bad thing, and. I think personally, it definitely was a path for me to learn to bow and to to learn to be humbled again and again. And I, I believe that that's the path for each of us. You know, that's the path that the path of becoming more like Christ that will be the whole of our life. I mean, learning to die, you know, so that we might live, learning to become small so that Christ might become more manifest in us, um, learning to, to trust and to rest. These, the, like, these are the, the, like the deepest values. And I often think of, um, I, I think of an icon that's above the iconostases in the church that we attend and it's of the last supper. And I always look at the image, the, the image of the disciple, John resting his head, on Jesus's chest. And I look at the, the disciple Judas, who's kind of belly flopping across the table, trying to grasp at the bread. And I definitely find myself, <laughs> unfortunately, oftentimes in that belly flopping position where I feel more desperate and trying to grasp at what will ultimately, you know, fall like water through my fingers. And so I guess I just feel like the project's goal is to learn and, and the whole of life's goal is to learn to, to rest our head on Christ and to trust. 
And so I feel like we were able to do that individually. And I, I think that others were able to do that. I, a friend of, <clears throat> a friend of mine, um, and it, it's in our cookbook. She recalled the story of a little girl who, in our, when we first opened the cafe, the Mariah Pie, she would come in at the, you know, the opening point of the evening, like around four thirty, and she would often be there until, you know, we closed and we're just sweeping up and sometimes she would fall asleep, you know, just her head down on the table in the middle of a bustling restaurant. And, you know, she was maybe eight or nine years old, unattended, you know, her parents were not there, nobody was looking for her, but she found this resting point in the restaurant. And um, that that just is a beautiful image to me of, of our vocation. And, and yet, it's one that we have to learn again and again and again. Yeah, thanks for that. I find you know, in this in this business of building community, too often people can be striving to achieve so much that they miss the point, as you're saying. And I've certainly been guilty of that in my projects, putting my success in, in worldly terms, even if it not for a worldly cause first. So that's a very good reminder. And as we wrap up here, um, how can, you know, as you said, you even though Mariah Pie is closed, you're still running this breakfast cafe. How can people um, support you in your project uh, if they want to do so? And also, do you have any like um, advice for anyone who might feel inspired to try to seek out more uh, authentic forms of Christian community in today's world? Yeah, thank you for those questions. And, and thank you for having us on this. It's been a real honor. Um, uh, to the first question, we <clears throat> we have limited web presence, but if if there are those of you who've heard this and who are interested more in the story of Mariah Pie, we we have written a self published book entitled the Mariah Pie Cookbook, and you'd be able to um, purchase that online um, at our website mariahpie.com. So that would be a place to kind of explore further some of the themes that we've talked about here and here in greater detail. And from more voices, um, there, there are other authors of that book as well. And so you'd you kind of hear the, the fuller enfleshment of the story. And you'd also um, get about 40 recipes that we used in the restaurant. There is, there is a documentary that was made that um, we're still trying to get up and available for folks, but um, that's entitled A Slice of Pie, A Love Story. And it's, it's a story... Um, a documentary made about Mariah Pai uh, shot back in 2016. So it, it feels a bit dated at this point, not in terms of the themes, but just in terms of those who were involved at that time. But um, you might be able to find that online as well. And then as far as kind of the question of community, those seeking community, I think it's, you know, I think a lot of folks are hungering for community. And I think this idea of I think we we need to be we need to cultivate relationships where we need one another. I think real relationship happens when we depend upon one another and need one another and can give to one another. And so finding people with whom to share life, to share backyards, to share tools, to um to work together, you know, like we heat our house with wood, for example, and um, chopping wood 
as mundane of a task as it is, it's a community building task. And it's one of these things that without that work, I, you know, I don't, there are countless conversations that I would not have had. And so finding ways of embedding ourselves in relational dependence, but also dependence upon the creation. And I know that for some people that, that feels perhaps very um, illusory or impossible given our urban contexts. Uh, but even, you know, a small, a small planter in your backyard that you get to tend and that, that provides you a way of being outside and a way of interacting with your neighbor, a chance to share food with a neighbor. I mean, I think these, these small steps can be deeply rewarding and, and, and just remind us, you know, one of the challenges of living in the city, you might not feel this as much, Malcolm, I'm not sure exactly what your surrounding horizons look like, but I think, you know, in the city, um, the horizons that we encounter are, are entirely of human construct. And so it's, and, and there's beauty to it, you know, culture, there's many things that are beautiful about culture. There's many things that are beautiful about the buildings that we've created. But I think all of us, even those of us who live in the cities, we're still deeply and inextricably dependent upon the creation. And so <clears throat> finding our ways, um, to, to places that have horizons that are not of human construct that remind us that we are placed in a much larger creation. I think that this is like one of the deepest orientations that we all need. And I think it's, it's fundamental to our understanding of what our part in the, the broadest community is. Thanks. That's really great advice. And as far as like a a horizon that's created by God. It's funny that you should mention that because here in the suburban Denver, Colorado, even the natural world that you do see, the trees and things in people's yards are all brought here by human hands. They're not, um, uh, this would be like a high plains desert, even though the suburbia has turned it into something of a forest. So the trees aren't, um, mm. aren't natural. If the water gets turned off, they would all go away. So uh, it's kind of an interesting uh uh, take on that to what extent Denver is an artificial something that is not able mm. to be supported by its natural environment. Um, but it is as it is. But th thanks again, uh, Aaron and Robert, for sharing your time and experience with us. Thanks, Peter, for joining the conversation. Really appreciated it. Can I can I jump in with just um, a final prayer? This is a, a prayer attributed to Oscar Romero. Um, I don't know if he actually wrote it, but it came to mind as, as you both were just speaking, especially about achievement and failure and kind of looking at the long perspective of God's work in the world. It helps now and then to step back and take the long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is even beyond our vision we accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water the seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. 
We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. Amen. 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 That prayer really does summarize what we were just talking about, doesn't it? Especially the, the planting of seeds. So thank you all again. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you all too. It's been wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much. And again, for your thoughtfulness and I just appreciate just the thoughtful conversation. Thank you, Robert, Aaron. Thank you, Malcolm.